When water expert Jim Graham heard about Queenstown's cryptosporidium outbreak, the country's worst waterborne crisis immediately came to mind. Yes, I mean, Havelock's always on our mind when we work in the water sector. It was a devastating event for many people. And it was quite devastating for the water sector as well. And so whenever we hear about these kind of things, Havelock comes up front of mind straight away. The Havelock he talks about is the Campylobacter outbreak in the Hawke's Bay town in 2016, when four people died, thousands were infected, and many were left with long-term disabilities. As the principal advisor on drinking water at Taumata Arawai, the new water regulator, Jim is charged with making sure our drinking water is safe and reliable every day. Yes, it's a huge job, but it's a very necessary job. We've um, got, a, got a quite a long history of not investing in our water supplies and wastewater systems and stormwater systems and letting them languish a little bit. And we see, we see the outcome of that now. That outcome is unsafe drinking water, not just in Queenstown, but many places around the Motu. The number of cases in Queenstown's cryptosporidium outbreak has doubled. A boil water notice has been issued in case it's coming from the public water supply. Well, repair crews will be starting work at first light to fix the broken pipe that's cut water to a quarter of New Plymouth District's water network. Martin Borough's water woes have already proven costly for businesses in the town and those costs now look set to rise even further. A burst water pipe left Waihi without water yesterday for a short period. A precautionary boil notice is still in place. I wouldn't call it neglect. It's, um, I mean, everyone in New Zealand's facing uh, ageing infrastructure. It's all getting to a point where it all needs replacing and renewing and uh, just a huge cost and a huge burden. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, why is it so difficult to make our drinking water safe? And who's actually in charge of it? Here's a clue to how complex it is. The country has thousands of water suppliers, and even our expert, Jim Graham, doesn't know about some of them. There's a lot of reasons why this has become a problem. And I think the fact that it's all, a lot of it's underground is part of it. I think another big part of it is it hasn't been prioritised by water suppliers. But but I think one of the main reasons is that water supply used to be relatively simple. Um, in the 1950s, uh, you found the cleanest water you could get and you added some chlorine, and that was it. Nowadays, we've learned about a whole lot of new contaminants and water supplies. We've learned a whole lot about what uh, the human body can tolerate in terms of those contaminants. Uh, we've, we've developed a whole lot of new technologies to deal with those problems. Um, water treatments become more expensive. Uh, knowledge and understanding of everything has increased. And so so it's kind of changed. I think water suppliers just haven't kept up with the increasing amount of spending that's needed. Can we talk a little bit about Queenstown? What What is the latest there? The current situation is that the source of the cryptosporidium is proving to be very elusive. There's a lot of work going on by a lot of people to try and figure that out. Ministry of Health looking very hard at food sources. Ourselves and council are looking very hard at water sources. But often you find with these kind of situations, the source is very difficult to determine. And I remember in, I think, 2004, we identified cryptosporidium in the water supply at Masterton. And we never actually found what the actual source of that was. What we found was a, a range of risk factors. And when those risk factors were resolved, the problem went away. 
when it was on, got to the news, I thought, oh, well, it's just a few people with a stomach upset. What is the big deal? But it is a big deal. Yes, it is a big deal, and, and for two reasons. One is that if you look at Havelock North, the work that was done to estimate the number of cases identified that there was probably over 8,000 cases, but there was only ever 120-odd cases actually confirmed. And so, so what we know is that if you get 10 cases of an illness associated with, with a water supply, you've probably got at least 10 times that number of cases. So, so if you've only got a handful of cases at 10 or 15 or 20, you know that the actual number is much, much higher. That's the first thing. The second thing is with cryptosporidium, it's a very interesting organism as a protozoa, and it's quite different to bacteria. When it's in, in the environment, it forms like a little, little tiny little golf ball of genetic material, and it has a very waxy kind of uh, outer shell, and that makes it resistant to chlorine. And so um, that makes it kind of hard to manage in a water supply if you're just using chlorine as you barrier. The other thing is, is that there's no real treatment for it. And so if people get sick, they'll normally get well by themselves. But if, if a person uh, has a compromised immune system for, you know, maybe some they're taking some drugs uh, or medications that affect their immune system or that have a compromised immune system, it can be very serious illness. So that's why we get concerned. So can, maybe we can take it back a bit, like right to the beginning, and you can explain to me what what are those steps, like from from the water falling from the sky to coming out of our tap? What actually happens? That's a great question. I always start with the water cycle. Rain falls on the ground. It flows in our rivers. It flows underground. It's in our lakes, and it makes its way to the sea. And all the time it's doing that, it's evaporating back into the clouds and, and it goes around and around in this uh, cycle. And the great thing about it is that if in that process water gets dirty, it cleans itself. The problem arises when people come along and people take water out of that system. And when they put it back, generally they put it back in a much dirtier condition than it was when they took it out. And sometimes the environment can cope with that and clean it up, but sometimes it can't. So the thing we need to remember is that water. H2O is never just hydrogen and oxygen. It's always got other bits and pieces with it. So it might contain microorganisms, uh, viruses or protozoa or bacteria, or it might contain metals or chemical uh, contaminants like nitrate or iron or manganese or boron or arsenic. And and some of those things naturally occur, and some of them uh, come from human activities or some might come from both of those things. So, for example... They might also contain pesticides, or, or the nitrate might come from human activities like farming or fertilizer. So a water supplier first needs to figure out what's the quality of their source water. Our, our law requires a water supplier to do a risk management plan for their water source, and they figure out what's in their water that they need to treat. And then they need to figure out what kind of treatment process they will need. Will they need a filtration process? Will UV, UV be the best thing to do? Will they use a chlorine process? Additionally to that, we set rules which say you have to have barriers to certain things. You have to have a barrier to bacteria. You have to have a barrier to uh, protozoa. If you've got cyanobacteria, which is a kind of a cross between bacteria and algae that can form blooms in the water and has toxins in it, if you have that, you need to have a management plan and you need to be able to demonstrate that that those toxins or the cyanobacteria are removed before the water goes to people. 
One of the key barriers is chlorine. So chlorine has been described as one of the greatest or biggest advances in public health uh, throughout the 20th century, and it's been used for more than 100 years now. That doesn't stop people complaining about it, even if they're in Havelock North and it's the answer to their deadly Campylobacter outbreak. I don't like that at all, but I mean it's, it has to happen, but um, I'm not drinking chlorinated water, I'm just still buying bottled water or getting bottled water. I'm really not happy about it. I know that that seems to be the only fix, but when you bathe your children and get them out and they stink like public swimming pools, that's pretty awful. Um, and the taste of it's disgusting, but if that's the only answer, then that's the answer, isn't it? One of the great things about chlorine is that it disinfects water of microorganisms when you add it, but it stays in the water to continue disinfecting that water when it leaves a treatment plant. We call that a residual disinfectant. Chlorine's a useful tool for making sure that if contamination arises within that distribution system, microbiological contamination arises within that distribution, there's some chlorine there to um, kill off those uh, bacteria or whatever that might be there. As well as that, um, water suppliers are required to manage things like backflow. That's uh, when when uh, there's a low pressure event and water can flow back into the network from, from a factory or a, or a house or a swimming pool or something. So we set rules about all of those things. Additionally, though, and this is a very key important part, is they're required to have what we call a water safety plan. And that's, in other words, it's a plan that sets out all of the risks in their supply and how they're going to manage those risks. And the water suppliers are the councils? The main water suppliers are the councils, but there's, there's a huge range of water supplies from some of our universities, campgrounds that are operated by the Department of Conservation, um, some of our prisons have their own water supply, um, some of our military uh, installations and, and camps have their own water supply. As, as well as that, there's small communities that are not councils that run their own water supply. They might have a water committee, they might have 20 houses, many uh, very small water supplies where there's perhaps two or three houses connected to a spring, or maybe a marae or a papakaianga that's using a, a local puna. So th- what, are there hundreds of water suppliers in, in the country? Thousands. Thousands? Thousands and thousands. Yes, yes, Absolutely. As the regulator, how do you keep an eye on all of this? Well, there's 600 and something council-owned and operated water supplies. So so at the moment, we're focusing on those water supplies um, because they supply water to uh, probably 80, more than 80% of the population. And then there's a whole lot of uh, smaller water supplies that have historically been registered when the Ministry of Health was the great uh, regulator. And then there's a huge number of water supplies that are not registered, have never been registered, and nobody really knows much about who they are, where they are, um, and what their circumstances are. And we're engaging uh, engaged with a process that's kind of just beginning to find out where those water supplies are, um, who operates them, uh, how best to provide some rules. It's a big job. We're just beginning it. Of the big ones, the councils, I mean, how many of them actually do have up-to-date safety plans? They all have water safety plans and we are reviewing those at the moment. Some of them are very good uh, and have been well thought through. Some of them are not so good and need further work. We'll get to the exorbitant costs of running a good water supply. Queenstown's could cost $30 million to fix. But remember Jim was talking about the wonders of chlorine as a barrier to contaminants. 
The trouble is, chlorine doesn't kill cryptosporidium. That's why a protozoa barrier is needed where surface water is used. And that's what's missing in Queenstown. Here's Steve Taylor from Taumata Arawai. The rules relating to uh, the requirement for protozoa barriers is something that came into effect uh, November last year. There has been um, significant knowledge across the sector um, that this is best practice and it certainly avoids the sorts of um, issues with, uh, that we've seen in Queenstown. And that leads to this. Bottled water everywhere because the town's supply may not be safe to drink. Yeah, if you want to drink it, it pays to boil it. Boil water notices are so inconvenient. It's more than just Queenstown that has a boil water notice. I mean, I was reading somewhere that Punakaiki on the west coast has a permanent boil water notice. Is is that still the case? There's a number of water supplies that have, have what people call permanent boil water notices. I'll be honest with you, in my view, uh, there should be no such thing as a permanent boil water notice. Water suppliers have a responsibility to provide water that's safe to drink. That's their job and that's what the law requires. A water supplier that says uh, to its consumers, I'm going to provide you with drinking water that's not safe to drink and you'll have to boil it to make it safe to drink. Uh, To me and to Taumata ROI, that's an unacceptable situation. That's not to say there isn't a place for a boil water notice. When a water supplier clearly has a problem or uh, clearly has unacceptable levels of risk. The boil water notice is a very useful uh, short-term mechanism. And it's much better to have a boil water notice than to turn the supply off and people have no water and they go looking for water uh, elsewhere. So so they do have a place. But I would think it's fair to say that Tomata ROI uh, and myself are pretty uncomfortable about the idea of a permanent boil water notice. Do you think... It- There'll ever be a day in New Zealand, though, where there is no permanent boil water notice? Yes. Yes, I do. I'm hopeful about that. I can see uh, no reason why we can't get there. It'll take a lot of work. It'll require some money. In Tasmania, they had a similar situation. They had a lot of boil water notices, and they had a whole lot of... uh, uh, reforms in Tasmania and change the structure of their industry, of their water supply industry. And one of the first priorities they they had there was to remove uh, the permanent boil water notices. And that's what they achieved. If it can be done in other places, uh, it can be done here. So yes, I'm very optimistic uh, that we can do it and I think we should be doing it. But who's going to pay? Well, that's where the controversial three waters, now affordable water, comes in. My former newsroom colleague, Nikki Mando, who now works at Auckland University, has done a lot of stories on it. And as a result of her research, she's firmly in favour of water reform. She's just back from Queenstown. So I arrive at the airport. Um, we go out to get something to eat, walk into a into a restaurant, cafe, bar thing, and go to get some water. And I went behind the bar and I said, oh, you know, can I, where do, where do you have your water? And he looked at me as if I was a lunatic, you know, and he went, you have to buy a bottled water. And that suddenly it brought it right home that this is what these people are, you know, this is what the people of Queenstown are dealing with all the time. Plus, it could go on for months. Yes, it could. If, if they can't put the money into upgrading their plant. And where's the money going to come from? It could go on for months. And that's the big thing, isn't it? The council there has already made it clear that 
they've known about this need to put in a protozoa barrier for some time. It's part of a plan, but these kinds of things are so expensive. The cost and price pressures that uh, councils face, because this is some very expensive um, work we have to do, we have to fund and invest in a progressive manner so rates don't become so untenable for our um, constituents. One of the interesting things that the research tells us is that if you live in a a city or a large town, you've got an 80% chance of having one of these protozoa barriers in place on your water supply. If you live in a small place, you have a 33% chance of having a protozoa barrier on your water supply. And that's purely because these are big bits of kit that cost lots of money. And if you only have a few ratepayers, how are you going to afford to, to pay for them? If they don't stick to the rules or if they don't bring their water supplies up to scratch, surely they're going to get prosecuted. If they don't comply, what happens then? Well, in the past, nothing really. Mostly there has been a huge amount of non-compliance within councils, these small councils in particular, because, you know, in some ways, what are you going to do? Also, they haven't been prosecuted in the past. We have the new water regulator who who has new powers. This is a significant wake-up call for those treatment plants. We will also be exploring compliance action against those particular facilities if they're not taking active action to implement protozoa barriers as well. But until now, they've basically been ignored. They've been flouted. They've been flouted, but... You know, part of me can understand if you have a small number of ratepayers and you have to pay millions and millions for a plant, what are you going to do? You know, could you just stump up 50,000, please, each ratepayer? It is really difficult. And you still have to provide playgrounds and, you know, all the other things that as, as a council you have to provide. So where does Three Waters, or as it's called now, affordable water, fit into all of this? I think with all the hoo-ha about three waters, affordable waters, um, we forget that there are three parts to it. So the first part is Tomata Adawai, the water regulator. Then you have the second part, which has just come into effect, which is the Commerce Commission can go in and kind of say, hey, look, we're making sure you are spending it on your water supply and that you're spending it efficiently. And it's the third part, in fact, the water entities, which is going from 67 little entities or mostly little entities to four and now 10 big entities. That's the bit that's become very controversial. But it's a really important bit because if you start with 67 different water entities, um, then a small one, you know, they might be smaller than Queenstown, but it it could be Queenstown, is going to have not very much money, as we've already discussed, but also not a big people resource. Um, You're not going to have the expert in Health. You're not going to have the expert in hydrology or the expert in um, water treatment plants. You just can't have that in 67 small councils. So that one of the exciting things about putting it down to four was that you bring all those resources together so that a small council will have access to the same resources and the same people, the same clever people as the big councils, the big entities. Going down to 10, you know, dilutes that a bit. And the other thing is that going down to four, councils have a really cash-strapped and have a, have a really big problem um, raising money. Um, they've got these huge debts and they, they don't have any big assets that they can raise money through. And by putting these entities together, you have a, 
an ability for the entity to raise more money to, or to, to get debt so that they can put the treatment plants in that they need. And going from 67 to 10 is, you know, better than nothing, but going to four perhaps on that front would have been better. If that element of Three Waters or affordable water was in place now or before now, then Queenstown Lakes District Council wouldn't have the responsibility of ensuring that it had a protozoa uh, barrier in place? It would go into the entity, which could then potentially raise money that the entity needs for Queenstown. And of course there's the concern that Queenstown would be pushed down the, the line because bigger ones. But I think that if you have the compliance bit, plus the economics bit, plus the entities bit, you do have the possibility that that at some stage Queenstown will get it without the council, as you say, having to raise the money. I'm also a little bit confused about that because I think National has said that it will repeal that part of the reform of affordable water. So, you know, combining all these water uh, systems into... 10 entities say that it may not go ahead anyway. No, and that's actually really worrying because, you know, from everything we've discussed, so they were meant to be established by July 2024. So that would have just been the beginning, but you'd have started being able to have this investment made and these people coming together. Um, and then everyone got cold feet, and now there's going to be a staged approach, I think, between July 2024 and July 2026. Um but as you say, it may not survive the election. And if it doesn't survive the election, we're left in this situation where we've got the same problem as we have now. And, you know, I would put money on the fact that Queenstown is going to happen again. When you started looking into this, were you surprised about what you found out? I just think that water, we don't know a lot about it. We sort of don't take any notice. We take for granted, I think, in New Zealand that we can turn on the tap and the water is clean. Yes, when I started looking at this this topic, I had no idea that some people have always boiled their water, that often, you know, the number of, you know, temporary boil water notices every year is hundreds. But I think what's most surprised me is the, if you start with Havelock North and people dying and a lot of people becoming very sick, and then you add in, you know, what's happened since then and, and now Queenstown. I'm so astonished that it's such a big deal. Why has it become a political football when it's just the basis, as you say, of of what we we need to do? For another story, a while ago, I talked to Bill Bayfield, who is the who was the um, first CEO of Tomata Adawai, the water regulator. And we talked about this. Why is it such? Because I was getting abuse for the stories I was writing, and he's getting a lot of abuse for, he was at the time, for being the boss. Mm. And he said, yes, but when I get emails from health practitioners, they are all in favour of it. He says that that makes it all worthwhile. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Phil Bench. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Jim Graham and Nikki Mando. Kaikite. kite.